let's let's come to the word. If you'd like to turn to First Peter, we're going to begin there. Over the past six Sundays, we've been looking at the incarnation of Jesus in a variety of ways. And today's sermon is kind of an application of those six sermons. What difference does the incarnation make to us today? Um, The eternal word, the son of God, was incarnated in his first advent. He lived a holy, righteous life. He died as a substitute for sinners. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended from heaven where he intercedes now for us. And the Bible is clear that Jesus is going to come back just as he went through the clouds, says in Acts chapter 1. And that second advent will not be to continue his, his atoning work. It will be to bring a final judgment for the wicked and inaugurate the eternal state for his people. So we have his first advent, we have his second advent, and you and I are living in between those two. So life between the two advents, how are we supposed to live in light of Jesus' first advent, his first coming, how are we supposed to live in light of anticipating his second coming? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So the, the too long didn't read, I suppose I shouldn't give you a too long didn't read in a sermon, but the too long didn't read is we live by faith. So let's pray and look, at, look and see what Peter said. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that 2,000 years ago, just about, you anticipated every need, every question, every concern, and you have answered them in the scriptures so that we don't need anything else. There's never a question about life or godliness that we can't answer from your word. There's never a point of closing the Bible and saying, well, it doesn't tell us about this. So we ask that as we look at your scriptures that you would teach us, you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts, nourish us on your good word (coughs) for your glory and for our good, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. So beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, We see it's addressed from Peter, an apostle of Christ. He writes to those who live as exiles, as uh, foreigners, as those who don't belong, as those who have been displaced. He's writing to those who have been scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are all uh, regions within Asia Minor at the time. We would call it Turkey today. He says that they are those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They have been chosen by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and they've been chosen to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. And he prays that grace and peace would be multiplied to them. So right off the bat, we see that the Trinity is involved. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit 
each accomplishing their purposes, each taking their role within redemption and our atonement. And then in verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. That caused phrase, caused us to be born again, uh, is literally regenerated us. He regenerated us to a living hope. Just parenthetically, let me say, it doesn't say he caused us to be born again by a living hope, but to a living hope. Because his regenerative work comes before we understand that hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in order to obtain an inheritance. And he says that inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance that we have, and we'll talk about that more in a, in a little bit, the inheritance that we have is incorruptible, it is undefiled, and it's unfading. That means that it can't be lost, it can't be stolen, it can't be destroyed, it will never rot. It will never go bad. And the same is true for us. That inheritance is kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. The word protected implies being uh, safeguarded in a military fortress. A heavily guarded fortress, a heavily defended fortress. No enemies can harm us there. No spiritual enemies have access to us there. And all of this happens through our faith in our great God. So we see that we are to be living by faith. Peter goes on in this, meaning everything that he said in verses 3 to 5. In verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, so that the proof of your faith may be found to, pr to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why are we grieved by various trials if we're protected within this heavily guarded military spiritual fortress? Well, the scriptures tell us the trials that we face, the suffering that we face, however it, we experience it, are not attacks of the enemy, but tests of our faith. Uh, our, our daughter, Grace, we're so proud of her. She has been in the Air Force now. Uh, Tuesday will be her fifth anniversary in the Air Force. She is a member of the military. She is a staff sergeant, fully recognized and all of that. And yet she's never been in battle She's never been in combat. She's never been in a war zone. 
And yet the, the Air Force has required that she be physically fit. And she's devoted to it. She's so devoted to it, she holds other people responsible for being physically fit, which she likes doing. All of that training is training. It's not warfare. It's training. Why do we experience suffering? So that our faith may be tested, not in warfare, but for the purpose of training, for the purpose of growth, for the purpose of maturity, for the purpose of being prepared. He compares this to gold. Uh, at the time, at the time, gold was purified through a single means. Now today, gold is purified through a variety of steps that, that become more and more and more intricate. At the time, gold was, was purified simply through the process of melting it so that the impurities rose to the top and could be skimmed off. Well, wouldn't they be afraid to melt gold? Well, no, because you can melt it, but you can't destroy it. Gold is not wood, hay, or stubble that's destroyed by fire. Gold and silver and the precious gems talked about in Corinthians are indestructible with heat. So we test gold by, by fire. The, 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 the word there means to assay it or to prove it, to purify it. And our faith, which is infinitely more precious than gold, is tested by fire. Not to destroy it, but to prove how pure it is. See, at the time, if you took a quantity of gold and you melted it, if no impurities floated to the top, you're dealing with pure gold. And so the testing of our faith reveals whether there's any impurities. And because the Spirit of God is the one who sanctifies us, as we've seen, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in verse 2, when our faith is tested, when we go through the fire, when we go through suffering, if any impurities happen to rise to the surface, the Holy Spirit is faithful to scoop them away. But just as fire can't destroy gold, suffering can't destroy genuine faith. Pure gold has a proven value. It's worth whatever gold happens to be worth. Purified faith has a proven value. That value is, as we are told, the praise and glory and honor we will give Jesus when he comes. So our suffering teaches us of the glory and honor due to Christ. Our suffering prepares us to praise him. And I think I can say that it will be true for every Christian that at the moment Jesus returns for us at the moment of our death or he comes for his church, we will not regret anything left behind. It will have been purified from us. And the connections of our heart to those things will have been severed. So all of our praise and all of our glory and all of our honor goes to him and him alone. That's what he's doing in our lives. 
And then Peter goes on in the next two verses, bringing this part to a close, though you have not seen him. And if Peter was here today, if the Lord brought him back to stand next to me and speak these words as, as he wrote them the first time, he would say, and though you have not seen him as I once saw him, you love him as I love him. And though you do not see him now, and I don't see him now, you believe in him like I believe in him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Grieved by various trials goes side by side with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Melting gold doesn't harm the gold. Being grieved by trials doesn't harm our faith. Instead, it reveals the richness of our faith, the joy inexpressible and full of glory. The best thing that can happen when you melt gold is that you, you have exactly the same quantity of gold, which means it was pure to begin with. And of course, if that gold is impure to begin with, when you melt it, you're gonna have somewhat less of a weight because you're gonna scoop off the impurities. Here's the thing. The outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. So receiving the salvation of our souls would be comparable to the inheritance. The inheritance which is reserved in heaven for us, incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. You can't separate the salvation of our souls here and the inheritance that's waiting for us. It's all the same. It's all the same thing. It's, it's not that we, we, we begin this life with a moment of salvation and then we leave that behind like a wedding ceremony and then we just proceed through the rest of eternity. Salvation is the rest of eternity. Not just going through the process of salvation, but being in a state of salvation, being Saved. We can understand being saved two ways, right? Being saved as the process and being saved as the state of my soul. So there's an inheritance coming, incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. That's eternal life. Salvation is the inheritance. The inheritance is salvation. Elsewhere, the scripture speaks of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. This is 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. Things which the eye has not seen. Things which the ear has not heard about. And things which have not entered into the heart of man. What is eternal life going to be like for you and me? We've never seen it. We've never heard of it. We never imagined it. We just can't begin to comprehend it. We take the little bit that we know and the little bit that we can think of and experience here. And, and the scripture even gives us that. No more tears, no more pain, no more, no more sorrow, no more grief. And we think eternal life is going to be wonderful if just there's no more pain. No more sorrow, no more tears. Let's get rid of those former things. But the Bible says God has things prepared for us that we've, we've, we've never seen in scripture, we've never heard, and we can't imagine. That's the inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. 
an inheritance that is reserved for you just as you're reserved for that inheritance. It's impossible for us to get the enormity of that. You, you could take the, the biggest building in the world. I don't know what that building is. And you could, you could fill it with talcum powder. And every speck of talcum powder is something else that God has prepared. And it would not begin to compare to what God has prepared. Now, with all of that massive amount of what God has prepared, what do you bring? Faith. You just, you believe. That's all. No works. No good works. No hard life. You, you don't have to go through a certain amount of suffering to have that. You don't have to go to church a certain number of times to have that or give a certain amount or do a certain thing or go on so many short-term mission trips. You just believe. Just believe that there, there is no greater contradiction or contrast between our faith and the enormity of what's to come. There's no greater contrast than that. We don't deserve these things. They are not a reward. We cannot earn them. God gives to us the inheritance, the things unseen, unheard of, and unimagined on the basis of our faith in him. That's how important our faith is. With faith in Christ, everything God promises is yours. Without faith in Christ, nothing God has is yours. Nothing. So let's, let's understand that. Faith is not merely wishful thinking that one day I might be saved. Faith is a deep conviction and belief that Jesus has saved me and that I am protected in that spiritual fortress and that whatever suffering I go through, and some suffer in an extraordinary measure, whatever suffering I go through is mere training, not warfare, not battle. The enemy has no access to us in that fortress. So faith is this persuasion that my life, I'll personalize it, that my life between Jesus' two advents is an opportunity to live that faith on a daily basis. The good works that I do are not the means by which I'm saved. They are the things I would naturally do if I had been born without sin in the first place. You wake up tomorrow morning, the question is not, how do I earn God's favor today? How do I earn God's pleasure today? How do I earn eternal life today? The question is, what would I do if I had no sin? Because you've been forgiven and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Since everything depends on faith, let's, let's make sure that we understand it. Turn back just a few pages in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1 is enough for this morning. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word assurance, 
that's translated assurance. It might be substance in, in your Bible. It means substance or essence. The idea is it's the reality of it. Faith is actually the reality of the thing that's been promised. That's kind of an odd thing to say. What does that mean? I, what it means is that you don't form this faith within yourself and polish it and perfect it and then put it in Christ and then he says, oh, okay, I'll save you. If you have faith in Jesus, you have been saved. The faith is that touch point of, of eternal life that's already been given to you. That faith is the regenerate you. Believing. The word conviction has the sense of uh, proof or evidence or persuasion, but indisputable proof, unassailable evidence, complete persuasion. So faithful is not wishful thinking. Faith is, is not daydreaming. Faith is not an unrealistic optimism. The person who says, I have faith in God, I sure hope he saves me, doesn't have faith in God. Faith isn't saying, I believe and therefore at some point in the future, God will have mercy on me and save me. Faith is, I believe because I have been saved. I believe because I have been regenerated. And we look at that regenerate self, we look at that, that experience and that reality, and we say it just doesn't seem possible because the regenerate self doesn't seem to be that different from the unre unregenerate self. But we walk by faith and we, not by sight. So faith is the assurance and the substance of salvation. Faith is not what leads to salvation only. Faith is the evidence salvation has taken place. Depending on where you school, where you went to school, perhaps, and uh, how you were schooled, and and what they did where you went to school, Linda and I had this at some point. I don't remember at some point, but they teach us these relationships, like uh, doctor is to patient as teacher is to student. Remember those types of things. The sun is to the day as the moon is tonight. It's thinking in, in categories. Well, faith is to eternal life what a cashier's check is to cash. Faith is to eternal life what a cashier's check is to cash. I've been told by many competent authorities that a cashier's check is the same as cash. That there's, there's no difference between a cashier's check and cash in the essence of it. The appearance of it is different. If somebody comes up and gives you a billion dollar cashier's check, or if they came up and do it this way, they offer you a billion dollar cashier's check or a hundred billion pennies, take the cashier's check. You're gonna be counting a long time. But that's what it means when it says faith is the assurance, the substance, the, the reality. The essence of salvation. Faith shouldn't lead us into wishful thinking. Faith itself should be assuring to us. And faith is the conviction, the indisputable proof of salvation. Somebody who trusts in Christ to save them is saved. That's why they trust in him.
just to take this one more small step, but I think it's an important step. Faith in salvation is not faith in my spiritual state. That is, biblical faith is not saying, I trust that I am saved. Biblical faith is, I trust that God has saved me. It's not trust in me and my experience. It's trusting God and his power. In doing jail ministry, I've, I've come across quite a few men who insist that they have faith, but they can't identify what that faith is in, which would say they don't have faith. That, that would be like a, a man saying, I'm married. Oh, what's your wife's name? Well, I don't have a wife. Well, then you're not married. Faith is in the work of God and the person of God to do what he has promised and to have done what he's promised. Listen to what Paul says to the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing. And what comes next? I am confident of this very thing that you will continue to believe? No. He says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's faith, Paul's confidence is not that they will continue to do a thing, but that God will continue to do his thing. And that God won't fail. See, that's the difference. I'll fail. And you'll fail. But God won't fail. Having faith Biblically means believing God. It means entrusting ourselves to God and relying on God. So I want to ask you these three questions with some biblical examples. First, do you believe God? When he speaks in his word, do you set aside every other consideration? Abraham was deeply grieved that he didn't have a son of his own. His heir was a slave born in his household. But Yahweh said to him in Genesis 15, one born from your own body will be your heir. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul picks up that idea in Romans 4, and he says, without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. The false teachers within the, the faith movement say you should never give a negative confession. You should never say, I'm weak, or I'm sick, or I'm in debt. You should never say that. You should only say the good stuff. But Abraham contemplated the deadness of his body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. That means he carefully considered those things. He thought in depth. He meditated upon how impossible it was for the two of them to have a child. And yet, with respect to the promises of God, it says in verse 20, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, God was able to do. Did it hurt Abraham's faith to consider his weakness and the deadness of his body and the deadness of Sarah's womb? No, it didn't hurt his faith at all. It built his faith. 
because it made it very clear when this happens, it won't have simply been one of those things. It won't be the natural outcome. What if God had simply given Isaac to Abraham and Sarah when they were, when he was 30 and she was 20? Well, nobody would have thought anything. People have children all the time. Wait till he's 100. Wait till she's 90. And that's something. Facing the truth of our circumstances doesn't harm biblical faith. It can only strengthen faith by making it clear that only God can do what he has promised. So that's the first question. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is able to do what he has promised? Even though as you look at yourself and say, I can't. I can't. I can't believe perfectly from now on until I die. My faith is going to go through all kinds of ups and downs. I'm going to continue to sin. I'm going to get things wrong. I'm going to offend people. I'm going to, to, to break my own heart and break the hearts of others. I can't earn my salvation. But God is able to do what he's promised, and he will save me. The second question is, do you entrust yourself to God? Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He built a massive statue of himself, 90 feet tall, and he demanded that everybody in his kingdom worshipped it, worship it. Uh, three Jewish men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, refused to do that. We don't know where Daniel was, but I know he wasn't bowing to the statue. Nebuchadnezzar threatened to execute these men in the furnace that they had used to melt the bronze for the statue, and they still refused. Listen to what they said. If it be so, or if, it, if he desires, our God, whom we serve, is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will save us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if Yahweh doesn't save us, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods, and we will not Worship the golden image you have set up. Gold, not bronze. That's a lot of gold. Ninety feet tall, sixty nine feet wide of gold. That's that's a lot of gold. So try and get the scene in your mind. You got Nebuchadnezzar over here. Let's just say he was six feet tall. He's standing in front of a 90-foot-tall statue of himself, and he's demanding that everybody within earshot fall and worship that statue as though that was him. See, I'm 90 feet tall. I'm made of gold. And all of these people who were who smart, not necessarily all of the people groveling and bowing down before him believe that, but, you know death and everything so they grovel and out in the midst of that that groveling mass three men are towering above them and you know what they're towering above nebuchadnezzar too he desperately needs people to grovel before him he needs other people to convince him he's really 90 feet tall and they refuse they worshipped Yahweh alone. They were convinced that Yahweh could do anything he liked. He could de deliver them out of the hand of the king. He could deliver them out of the furnace. But even if Yahweh didn't, they were not going to pretend that a mere man was worthy of worship. They lived out what Peter wrote about, 
Hundreds of years later, those who suffer according to the will of God must entrust themselves to a faithful creator as he does good. They said our God is good. He can deliver us, and we entrust ourselves to him, whether he delivers us or not. So do you entrust yourself to God, regardless of your circumstances? The third question is, do you rely on God? Relying on him means resting the full weight of your life and your circumstances on him. Paul and his companions had been led by the Holy Spirit through Asia Minor. Again, that's that area of of what we would consider central and western Turkey. They end up in Europe, specifically the city of Philippi. There's no synagogue there. Paul's habit was to go to the synagogue and teach first. There was no synagogue there, but they found some women praying by the river. The, The river really is more of a creek to us. It's... I. It looks from the pictures, it looks like the water might be six or eight feet wide. It's not very big, but they called it a river. And I think Paul began going there on a daily basis to teach. And one of the one day as they were walking there, he cast a, a demon out of a slave girl, which infuriated her owners because the owners used her to tell fortunes. And now their source of income was gone. So they complained to the authorities. The authorities had Paul and Silas arrested. They were severely beaten. They were locked in stocks in the local jail, which means they can't lay down. They can't get comfortable. They can't really move. And we pick up that story in Acts 16, 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. We don't know what they were praying. We're not told. And it's certainly possible that it was the kind of prayer that says, God, how could you do this to me? But I don't think that it was since they were singing hymns of praise to God. I think that their prayers were more along the lines of, Father, we rely on you. We trust you in our circumstances. We don't know what hymn of praise they were singing either, but perhaps it was Psalm 107, verses 13 to 16. Then they cried out to Yahweh in their distress. He saved them out of their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness and for his wondrous deeds to the sons of men, for he has shattered the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. That would be an appropriate thing for them to sing, especially with what comes next. Suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. He shattered the doors of bronze and iron and everyone's chains were unfastened. He broke their bounds apart. Paul and Silas are utterly powerless over their circumstances. They can't can't open the doors. They can't unlock the stocks. They can't remove the fetters from themselves. They can't free themselves, but they believed in God. They entrusted themselves to him and they relied on him. They put the full weight of their circumstances on him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God 
that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That word casting was used for saddling a, a donkey or a horse or a camel. It means to pick up a burden and just throw it on something else so that that something else just carries the weight of it. Cast your care on God and, and let him bear the burden of it. That's the third question. Do you rely on God? None of us do these things perfectly. We don't believe perfectly. We don't entrust ourselves perfectly. We don't rely perfectly. But God is the perfect object of faith. God is the perfectly faithful one that we can entrust ourselves to. And God bears up the weight of what we cast on him in a perfect way. I don't believe that if you've only got partial faith in casting your burden on him, he only bears it partially. I believe he bears the full burden. And that it takes time and experience for us to learn we don't have to bear it. And that when we continue to feel the weight of that burden, we can continue to go to him and say, here, here it keeps pouring out on me. It keeps falling upon me. And as it falls upon me, Lord, I'll just place it on you. I'll keep placing it on you. As long as it falls on me, I'll keep placing it on you. As long as my circumstances continue to feel impossible, I'll just continue to come to you in belief over and over again. As, as long as I continue to face circumstances that I can't control, I'll continue to entrust myself to you that you'll do good. And sometimes a minute later you turn around and that burden has hit you again and you just lay it back on him. It's not that you're picking up a new, the burden off of his, his back. I don't think he lets us do that. We just continue to experience it. And to some degree, we'll never be completely free of what we feel to be the weight, but he will never, ever get tired of us casting our burdens on him. As we bring this home, faith made sense before the incarnation uh, I, I believe Adam, in spite of his sin, had faith in God. Noah did, Abraham did, Isaac did, Jacob did, Joseph did. Uh, we see it with Moses, we see it with Aaron, we see it with Joshua and Caleb, we see it with David, we see it with all these people in the Old Testament before the incarnation. And that faith made perfect sense before the incarnation. How much more does faith make sense after the incarnation? When God came and revealed himself to us, when Jesus said, this is what the Father is like, he's like me. The old hymn says, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. In all the world around me, I see his loving care. And though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I know that he is leading through all the stormy blast. The day of his appearing will come at last. So rejoice, rejoice, O Christian, lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ, the King. The hope of all who seek him, the help of all who find, none other is so loving, so good and kind. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, the Bible tells me so. 
but he lives within my heart too. We do believe it first and foremost because we're told in scripture, but we also experience his love. We know his love. So let's pray and then we'll sing that hymn together. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith that serves as a fortress for us. We thank you that nothing can break into that fortress and steal us away. And Lord, in theory, we give you thanks for the testing of our faith. But in practice, we ache under some of those tests. In practice, we don't see the purpose of some of those tests. We don't think that it's necessary. But we believe you and we entrust ourselves to you as you do good. And we rely on you. And even if it's just for the, the moment, <coughs> we rest the weight of our circumstances on you. And we have this confidence, Lord, that the day will come when you lift every burden from us and no other burdens will ever come. When you deliver us from the furnace and there are no more furnaces. When you remove our shackles and open the prison cells and there are no more shackles or prison cells to be found. It seems that we stumble, we get up with you, we stumble, we get up with you, and we stumble, we get up with you. That seems to be a long-term pattern for our lives. But in the end, the last thing will be deliverance. The last thing will be freedom. The last thing will be the former things being taken away, and they will never, ever come back. And we give you thanks for that.